Hello, listeners. This is Dan Kowalski, host of the Alaska Story Project. The motivation and inspiration for this project is to talk with authors, scientists, artists, historians, fisher poets, and a colorful cast of characters who are both knowledgeable and passionate about Alaska. Storytelling has always been key to how we connect as humans, piquing our curiosity and deepening our understanding. Our podcasts are unhurried, so we invite you to settle in and explore with us some of the richness that makes Alaska such a special place. Without further ado, let's begin. Welcome, listeners. It's my pleasure to be in the studio with an author of an Alaskan classic entitled Alaska Blues. He's also the author of several other books, most recently The Alaska Cruise Explorer. He's a map maker, and so a, a warm welcome to author Joe Upton. Thank you, Dan. I, I love to share my experiences. Well, Joe, if you, uh, if you think back, you know, what were some of the first things that uh, made you start to focus your attention on the inside passage? Well, when I was 18 years old, I was working on a fishing boat in Chile for 50 bucks a month, and there were some Alaskan fishermen there. They were teaching the Chileans how to fish. And these guys that hang out at this hotel called the Hotel Pratt, and I'd go in there and nurse my cheap little local beer and just listen. And even before I came to Alaska, it was a mythic place in my mind because of the stories these guys told about it. And then, you know, I went up there and worked on a few big boats. And then in 1972, I got my own boat, just a 32-footer. But a friend of mine, he worked on one of those survey ships, and he took his whole stack of charts, marked them all obsolete, and gave them to me, probably 30 pounds of charts of Alaska and the B.C. coast. And I studied those charts, and the more I studied, the more I just was dying to go up there. Oh, wonderful. Well, those of us that are uh, intrigued with maps and on-the-water charts— uh, can imagine what that stack must have represented to you. And uh, undoubtedly, they were on board your first boat uh, when you headed north. I built a special chart table to fit all those charts. I still have them in my study, and I still look at them. Well, <laughs> uh, lucky you. Uh, uh, word on the dock is that uh, Noah is soon to no longer publish paper charts. Is, is, did you hear something along those I, lines? I heard that, you know, and it's so sad because, you know, even those of us who now have GPS, I think we like to have the, the old charts on board. For number one, they have a, a wealth of information, and we can write notes on them, and we can write where we went and when we were there. They're, they'll be missed. Yeah, most definitely. Joe, when you think of the Inside Passage, uh, how would we define what constitutes the Inside Passage? Well, basically, this is the 1,000-mile route or 1,100-mile route from Seattle in Puget Sound 
up through the approximately 2,000 islands of the British Columbia and southeast Alaska coast to Skagway because it was originally um, used mostly by folks who went up in the gold rush of 1897. So the famous Klondike gold rush, this was uh, uh, the route or one of the routes or how on that? There are many routes, but the traditional route is fairly well established and it goes through the narrowest channels And most of all, it allows even very small boats to get to Alaska without going out into the ocean. Yeah, which undoubtedly extends the time of uh, possible travel or at least uh, uh, less than brutal travel. If if you're talking about winter on the ocean versus uh, transiting the inside passage. Well, I mean— there are a few places where one must be cautious. And I mean, you know, just to give you an example, there's a place called Queen Charlotte Sound. And one winter, the Alaska State Ferry was out there and having a rough crossing. And one of the trucks broke its chains and started moving back and forth and smashing cars. And no one could go down there because... There was just uh, the boat was moving so violently and and people could hear their pets barking in their RVs. And luckily, no gas tank was punctured. And uh, so they didn't get a fire started. But when they got to Ketchikan, they had to get the tow trucks to pull the wrecks out of there. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's uh, that's a fair indication. And uh, I remember crossing Queen Charlotte Sound. Undoubtedly, you've got some some strong memories. Uh, northbound, usually on a small boat. Uh, we overnight in a place that has a great name called God's Pocket. So any stories of uh, you crossing in, uh, in any size boat? Well, I've got a good one of a friend. He was southbound in the fall in a 36-footer, and he had a daughter in diapers. And they got stuck at Safety Cove, which is the place you wait on the north side of Queen Charlotte. And uh, they started running out of food, but they were able to flag down a passing tug for some frozen pork chops. And uh, the weather still wasn't getting any better, but then they ran out of diapers. And that was it. They had to take off and they got beat up pretty bad coming across, but they made it. (laughs) Good. I'm partial to the uh, stories that have happy endings. So, uh, <laughs> well, they got there. <laughs> they got there and they got some diapers. This is, this is good. Probably helped the marriage stay intact. No, but everyone who's traveled to Alaska in a small boat has a story about Queen Charlotte because it's a nasty place. Yeah. Well, so there's uh, where you can see the flat line of the horizon of the big Pacific Ocean. It's uh, Queen Charlotte's. Uh, it's Millbank Sound, still in, in British Columbia, and then Dixon Entrance uh, at the top of British Columbia and at the uh, entrance to Alaska's Inside Passage. Uh, yeah, so uh, these are these are famous spots, and you, uh, you hope that you've got favorable weather. Sometimes you uh, wait it out like that last uh, story of your friend and, until you can make the transit. Oh, I mean, especially in the spring and the fall. I mean, some days you got to wait. You know, some years you have to wait 
two, three, four, five days. And, and But in God's pocket, there's an interesting protocol, okay? You get there in the evening, and you get your boat all ready to go. You, you tie things down. You make sure nothing's going to come loose. And then you get up, set your alarm for 3 a.m., and you get up and you listen. If, you, if the surf sounds really loud or if you can hear trees falling in the forest, go back to bed because you're not going anywhere that day. But if you wake up and it's still, start up and get out of there and get across before the wind comes up. It's only, I think, 40 miles. So, you know, if you get an early start, you'll be done in oh, six hours maybe. Is that right? Five hours. Yeah. Well, that conjures uh – my wife and I made our first crossing of uh, Queen Charlotte. Uh, we followed the protocol. We we hadn't heard it, but it made sense, right? And so uh, up very early, fix a cup of coffee, step out on deck, and you listen exactly. And when I stepped out on deck, everything was really quite still, which is very good with the exception of a very dense fog. <laughs> and so then it was a decision. Do we cross now for calm Queen Charlotte's in the dense fog, or do we wait? And so we chose to cross. And this was, this was a little bit, uh, this had some courage behind it because we didn't have a radar. And so making our way across Queen Charlotte meant that it was dead reckoning. Compass course, time, speed, listening, dense fog, quite the experience. And I woke my wife up when the bottom came up at a significant place and we were just where we thought we should be. <laughs> You're lucky. And then the fog lifted, and it uh, visually was yeah. confirmed. And so yeah. then we made it up into Prince yeah. Hugh Sound. Those kinds of experiences are basically welded into memory, those uh, early early adventures with small boats in the inside passage. So, Joe, uh, you know, I'm curious to, to go back and think of the uh, Klondike gold rush and – I've seen pictures and accounts of what went north in these steamers and whatnot. What what came south in those steamers? Well, you know, everyone was so excited. I mean, it was a phenomenon. Something like 100,000 people left. They, they dropped their plows. They walked away from factory jobs. They kissed their wives and their kids goodbye. And they headed north. Maybe a third of them made it. It was an epic adventure. I mean, Getting to Skagway was just the first part. They went on a steamer to Skagway. Then they had to get over the passes. And that was a struggle in itself. Then, if you can imagine this, they ended up in winter on the shores of a frozen lake. They cut down trees. They sawed the trees into boards with pit saws, which is the most excruciating work you could possibly do. And then... They built boats, and in the spring of 1898, something like 5,000 boats left Lake uh, Lindemann and headed down the Yukon River. And they, But then they got to Dawson and the Klondike, and 
most of the claims that had already been taken. Um, most of the gold had already been discovered. Most of them just ended working for someone else and and making a little money and moving on to the next gold rush, of which there were several in Alaska. So what came home mostly was stories and a few nuggets, but not many people struck it rich. Yeah, well, I imagine those who came back uh, with their stories, lives intact, that was a signature adventure yeah. for them. Well, I heard a story of this gal, her husband headed up north, and she didn't hear from him from a year and a half because there wasn't any telegraph out of the, out of the Klondike. So finally she went down to the Seattle waterfront to see if she could talk to people coming off the ships to see if anybody had heard of her husband. And there he was dragging his suitcase down the ramp of the boat, and he was one of those guys who had some gold. <laughs> Well, I can only imagine what uh, what the grin would have been like <laughs> on both parties there. <laughs> May it be so. Okay. Well, uh, so if if we were to arc back quite a bit further in time, this intricate laced passage with two thousand islands formed by formed by what? And you know, how did the first people get? Uh, to inhabit the inside passage. Well, I mean, it, it's a fascinating tale. Basically, you had the movement of the tectonic plates, you know, these plates that make up the Earth's crust, and they created this wrinkled coast, okay? Then you had the Ice Age, which I think started 30,000 years ago. And these glaciers ground their way down the coast, smoothing off the, of the lower mountains, grinding out these canyons that became channels. And at the same time, the ice created a land bridge which allowed Siberian uh, natives to follow game across the Bering Strait into Alaska and spread out through North America and then as the ice melted, they created this rich culture based on when the tide is out, the table set for the, the richness of the marine life supported them. So that was way back in history. Yeah. And when the tide is out, the table is set. Is that still true today? Oh, sure. I mean – even in Puget Sound, where there's a lot of people, there's razor clams on the outside coast. There's clams on the inside coast. There's crab. Oh, the sea basically fed the entire native population and the first settlers. Well, that's a that's a good segue into life along the Inside Passage uh, in in current times and. Uh, a nod back to the first peoples of the coast. You've said, others have said that uh, we're just recent visitors us, uh, of of our descent. And and I mean, there's you know there are many villages on the coast, and um, there's places where there were villages. When I was a fish buyer, one of our fishermen was married to a a Haida native. And she said, Joe, I'll show you where one of the villages was. And we went to the place called Tongas Island. And she said, look on this beach. B 
because when the natives went out on their hunting expeditions and their trading expeditions, they would cast trading beads into the water as an offering to the spirits. And we got down on our hands and knees on that beach, and we found some tiny but gorgeous colored glass beads. And then we learned that something else happened there. In the 1920s, the inhabitants of this village, they came back to discover one of their totem poles cut down, and in the distance they could see this you know, 60-foot, 70-foot steamboat leaving. They rowed after it as fast as they could, and you know, they lost track of it. Flash forward, that totem pole ended up in Seattle in Pioneer Square. 40, 50 years later, it rotted. So the city fathers, they knew where that totem pole had come from. So they went back to the tribe and said, we'd like you to carve us a totem pole. And the tribe said, we'd love to do it. That's $35,000. They sent the tribe the money, and the tribe said, that's for the first one <laughs> that you stole. If you want another one, it'll be another $35,000. Good for them. Good for them. And uh, as a good friend of mine likes to say, that brings up a lot. I mean, you, you can't talk about the coast without exploring this unique, rich culture that developed there. But it's a whole other podcast. Well, and we look forward to yeah. that. So yeah. uh, uh, duly noted and so back to life along the Inside Passage. For decades, it was based upon mostly harvesting of salmon. And there was a, a small scale at first timber industry. What's the biggest change that I've seen in the coast? Well, I went up there first in 1965 and – the coast was full of salmon boats, gillnetters, saners, and I mean like j just a microcosm is a place called Rivers Inlet. That's uh, about uh, 500, about 350 miles, 400 miles north of Seattle. This inlet in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, there was seven canneries there. There was a hospital there. Every spring, steamers would bring workers up from Vancouver to work in the canneries, natives would paddle their canoes from all the villages around to work in the canneries, and then they started logging on the on the in the headwaters of the rivers around uh, rivers inlet, not understanding that what they were doing was destroying the habitat of the returning salmon. And then by the seventies, rivers inlet was a ghost town. And um, today, Rivers Inlet is just, there's one of the canneries is a sport fishing lodge, and that's the story of the coast. Commercial salmon fishing, sadly, in British Columbia, has diminished to the point where it's mostly sports fishing, whereas in southeast Alaska to the north, the resource is much stronger and the commercial fishing industry is still vital. Still vital, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And to this day, many of us and the uh, current speaker, 
are still involved as commercial fishermen. Uh, well, uh, out of curiosity, Joe, do you do you miss engagement with uh, commercial fishing? The last eleven years, I fished in Western Alaska, and it was like getting mugged every day because it was so competitive. I mean, other boats was were hitting you, but we had a wonderful boat. I had a wonderful crew. I love the camaraderie because the commercial fishing brings you together with your crew, with your friends, and besides, you're all in it together. And even though it's a very competitive fishery, if you're in a jam or you need something, the other fishermen are there for you. But I don't miss <laughs> the feeling of being mugged when I got back to the anchorage at night. Yeah. So thinking back to logging, right behind our cabin, for example, if we go walking in the woods, we'll see these large stumps with these notches cut into them. What's, uh, what's going on there? Oh, well, I can go in the woods behind my house on Bainbridge Island, Puget Sound, and see, this, and see the same thing. And, and the reason is before chainsaws and even with chainsaws, these giants of the forest, they would swell at the base to almost twice their diameter. So if you wanted to cut them, you had to move up. Those slots were for something called springboards, were, which were these boards with these metal tips that you jammed into the slot that you'd made so the loggers could stand sometimes 10 feet off the ground so that they could cut the trunk where it was uh, a bit thinner. Yeah. But, I mean, the story goes on beyond that. I mean, these early – the early loggers, they call them hand loggers because, you know, they just had axes and saws and then these little mechanical jacks. And the trick was they would log these steep slopes and they'd cut these giant trees and let them slide all the way down into the water. And then round it up with a, yeah. a small boat and taken taken to town, taken to the mill. Once the tree was in, were in the water, they would have to cut the limbs off. Then they would have to cut them into 60-foot lengths, which I believe was typical. Then they'd assemble them into a raft, and then they would call the mill. Um, I think about, about 480 miles from Seattle is a place called Swanson Bay, and that was – uh, that there was an old uh, sawmill there, a pulp mill, and this was in really steep country, and it was perfect for hand loggers. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, I got one little story here about a hand logger. These hand loggers, these were guys with well, they were ch- with chainsaws, so it was more modern times. They're cutting this giant fir tree on this cliff, and one of them sees an orca swimming along the shore. And he says to his buddy, I bet I can hit that orca with this tree. So what he does is he waits till the orca gets closer and he cuts that tree and that tree falls and it looked like the very tip of the tree hit the orca. So these loggers, they had a laugh about that. Two weeks later, that same logger was crossing that bay in an outboard boat and an orca came up underneath the boat, flipped the boat. And drowned him. And his buddy said it was the same orca, but who knows? 
Well, are there any wisdom traditions that might use the word karma? <laughs> That's a good description of what happened. Uh, fair to say, and uh, something to legitimately ponder. Oh, yeah. yeah. Muse over. Well, and uh, that's that's some of life along the Inside Passage. And uh, any reflections on comparing and contrasting? What's it like now? Has it changed much? Is it fundamentally the same? No, I mean, okay, in southeast Alaska, which is the northern part of the Inside Passage, the fishing is still strong. The towns are much busier, but the landscape itself is is very similar, and perhaps better because the, there's much less logging today. In the southern inside passes, the coast of British Columbia, the, the sad part is that the salmon industry has basically almost disappeared. So the coast is much less active than it was in the past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, most of our experience and much of the experience for those that might be listening takes place in the summertime along the inside passage. Days are long in the summer, solstice. If we were to take a look at the photo period in the solstice month of, you know, right around the third week in June, and if we're up in southeast Alaska, up, uh, oh, a good 10 degrees north latitude, say, from Seattle, what are the days like then during the summer solstice? Well, here's an example. The softball teams are coming into the bar at 1030 at night. <laughs> I mean, it's – and I mean – and the long hours of daylight animate people. Uh, I mean, in you know, in, in those peak days, especially in June, it's like – it doesn't ever get super dark. It's basically sunset becomes this twilight, which then becomes eventually dawn. And um, I mean, you know, many people are fishermen and they need to be up for hours and hours. And so the long hours of daylight animates people. And the flip side is true too. In the wintertime, it might, it might get daylight at 9.15. And it might be dark at quarter of four, so your whole life's you know your kind of pattern of your days is is flopped. And I mean, especially in these remote communities that don't have TV or generators, you know, seven o'clock it's kind of getting time for toes up. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, uh, in the winter in Southeast Alaska, it's uh, my observation experience uh, that the. Those that those that are there, those that stay, the lucky ones have good, compelling work inside buildings where there's heat and light and whatnot. Others that are out of town where it might be uh, solar batteries with uh, LED lights, it's closer to what you just described, early to bed and a little bit later to rise. The irony is, for people who are there year-round, I mean, the summertime is a blur. You know, you're, whether you're a bear trying to catch all your food so you can hibernate, whether you're a whale loading up on fat so you can go to Hawaii and have a baby, summertime is just super active. 
when the days get shorter and 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 you, that means you have more time for things you have time for community for in the 70s when alaska was flush with oil money the library in ketchikan had a program they would send out brochures to all the local residents on the islands and this was a program you could pick books from the library they would send them out free with return postage also free. And so um, well, I got a lot of good books. And then I happened to be in Ketchikan, and I was talking to the librarian. I said, hey, out in the bush in those you know remote, remote and roadless communities, what's the most popular book we're sending out? She said, oh, The, the Joyous X. We, we can't keep enough of them in stock. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, so, uh, you know, thinking of seasons and thinking of weather, uh, I'm aware that in the, uh, as, as we go towards equinox, everybody talks about the uh, equinox storms. And so how do things change as, we, as, we, uh, as the season along the inside passage slides into fall? What are the creatures doing? What do the people tend to be doing? How how's that go? Well, I mean, the North Pacific is just a storm engine, and uh, when those storms come sweeping in across the waters of the Inside Passage, no, no one moves, and it's also a time for animals to, like we talked about before, it's, it's time for them to get ready for winter, and 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 the whales leave, and it's a time of hunkering down. Certainly, the the brown bears are yeah. are interested in putting on the last uh, protein and fat rich salmon uh, before they start to den down. Uh, the eagles up in the Chilcat watershed around Haines. There's a congregation of uh, in in October and November of eagles that is uh, stunning, and they're basically doing the same program, putting on extra fat and protein in order to hunker down for the winter. And uh, there's a saying that uh, that I've heard many times and actually follow some is, those creatures that can migrate do migrate. <laughs> many fishermen among them. <laughs> right. um, so uh, subsistence along the uh, subsistence activities along the inside passage. Uh, what uh, what's gathered and harvested in spring, summer, fall? How does that work? Well, you know, summer you know, or spring is traditionally a time for herring, and uh, um, although our, there are herring all summer, subsistence. We met some fishermen when I was a fish buyer. When they came up in their boats, they would have canned vegetables and fruits, you know, canned in jars that their families had put up for them down south. And as they worked through those jars, they would catch crab and smoke salmon. So those jars that went northbound full of fruits and vegetables, when they went south, they would be full of crab and salmon. Yeah, boy, excellent. 
one of the things that our family loves to do, and this would be late summer, is kind of when the whole ecosystem is peaking in many respects. We love to hunt golden chanterelles and feel so special if we can come across a fresh king bolete. Of course, the salmon runs, uh, the smoking of salmon, the harvesting of beach asparagus and, and putting that by. All this activity that is very seasonally based. And one thing that I've always been aware of is that right around the equinox, you know, early September, the month of September, is that there's an interesting kind of uh, energy that I usually feel. And it's, and it's an energy that is good and clean and hits its stride when you're when you're bucking up a, a log and splitting it and stacking it, not for the coming winter, but for the subsequent uh, spring or summer or fall. So you're putting wood up uh, for other other seasons, and it's really good energy, and it's a slow kind of energy that also loves to take time that's in accord with that, that shorter daylight. So yeah. equinox would be 6 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And it's it's so rich to pick up a book, to throw another log on the fire. And so that's that's always been satisfying, part of the season up in the inside passage. I think these are elemental feelings, you know, putting food by, gathering firewood, preparing for the dark days, the windy nights. It's something... I mean, it's not just human; it's animal. We see it. We see it around us. So it's, and it's deeply satisfying. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and uh, I guess it would be some of my projected hope that uh, humans, wherever they find themselves, can kind of come to and pay attention to photo period, to weather outside, and uh, we've got so many things that ask for our attention here in modern civilization. Some of those basic things that I, like you, Joe, maybe put in slightly different words, but feel as though is fundamental or innate or in our bones. To the extent that we can be in touch with that, I think it is satisfying. I think it it feels good. I think it's probably healthy. I remember writing in my journal, we just finished our fall season of fishing in the snow up by Glacier Bay and uh, it took us three days of traveling to get back to our little cabin and we only saw one boat or the, or the last two days we only saw one boat and we, we got back to our cabin and, and we bailed out our skiff that was sunk and we got up there and we built a fire and our dog went out to find his friends and found the rum bottle, and I remember just writing, this kind of life filled us up in a way it never did in the South and in the city. Mm-hmm. Well, Joe, uh, I remember vaguely a story that I think might be emblematic of uh, you know, what the Inside Passage is like, and I'm vaguely remembering a a family out in the woods, 
where the wife was pregnant. Well, I mean, you know, back in those days, turn turn of the century, 1895, there were little homesteads at the head of many of these inlets because the country's so steep, only at the head of the inlets was there a river, you know, a river mouth and a flat enough land to have a homestead. Well, there was this guy named Ernest Halliday way up at the head of King Combe Inlet. And his wife was pregnant. And they decided he was going to take her to the hospital at Comox, which I think was over 100 miles away. This is before outboards. He got in his rowboat with his two sons and their dog. And it took him 14 days to get to Comox. Many of those were the nights were spent in native villages or waiting for weather. Well, she had her baby. The baby was healthy. She rode back, or they rode back together. Only took them nine days or ten days. But after that, she decided she'd have them at home. Hmm. Just gives you a sense of the hardiness of the people and the vastness of the land. Uh, glad to hear that the uh, offspring was healthy. <laughs> well, Joe, this is uh, really rich with stories. And uh, so a, a question for you is that uh, if, if somebody is totally intrigued and wants to go into more depth with uh, your work, uh, your maps, your books, uh, how would you direct them? Oh, you know, most of my books are on Amazon Alaska Blues is a really good one. But I've got this map. It's called the Alaska Cruise Map Illustrated. And it's illustrated with pictures. And there's points, you know, paragraphs and arrows for stories. And there's links to videos that Dan and I have made. So, yeah, go to Amazon and just put up Joe Upton and pick something good. Well, there you go. I can I can heartily recommend it. And uh so, listeners, I, I would like to thank you for your interest and participation in this conversation. And if uh, if you responded and like it a lot, uh, please share, talk it up. And uh, until next time, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you, Dan. Let's keep doing this. And there's a lot of great stories out there we can share. Okay. Well, thank you, Joe. And over and out.